Texas may be losing its hold in the U.S. House, but it may play an outsized role in who the next speaker will be. That story and more today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Will Nancy Pelosi remain Speaker of the House? Why Texas Democrats in Congress are a House divided and what that means for the leadership contest. Also, new standards for public school curriculum in Texas set to change how students are taught about the causes of the Civil War. And with the start of the Texas legislative session just weeks away, a warning to Texas Republicans, don't mess with a bluer Texas. All those stories and more today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's beginning to feel a bit more like the holidays, isn't it? Hope so. It's Texas Standard Time on this November 19th. And as always, we are so grateful you're spending a bit of your day with us. In the immortal words of Nigel Tufnell, this one goes to 11. We speak, of course, of the Texas Longhorns, one spot short of the top 10 in the Associated Press College football rankings after beating Iowa State this weekend. Texas is the only top 25 team from the Lone Star State right now. They'll take on division foe Kansas on the day after the trip to fan takes hold in earnest, which is to say Friday. In the Big 12, Oklahoma is sitting on top with just one loss this season, number six in the AP poll. If you're more of a news junkie, the main event right now seems to be who's the front runner in the race to lead the U.S. House of Representatives as an elaborate changing of the guard continues. After big wins by Democrats, the Republican-led House, including several chairmanships held by Texans, set to change hands. And Nancy Pelosi, the former House Speaker and Democratic leader for over a decade and a half, wants another round with a gavel. One problem, it's not clear how much support she has as Democrats try to figure out a forward direction for the party, how to build on the midterm momentum. And here's where, despite losing a lot of top spots on committees, Texas's congressional delegation could play an outsized role. Kevin Diaz has been keeping a finger on the pulse of this speaker's race for the Houston Chronicle, and he joins us now from Washington. Kevin, welcome back to The Standard. Hey, good to be with you. Uh, so you uh, have uh, apparently been following this rather closely, and uh, I guess there's, there's. well, why don't you lay it out for us? Why does there seem to be this fight over whether to go with Nancy Pelosi again or not? Well, I think it's two things. One, it's part of a broader uh, divide within the Democratic Party. This is a party that, apart from being opposed to Donald Trump, is trying to figure out a direction to go in, whether to go in a more uh, centrist direction or a uh, you know to move a little bit farther to the left. The other part is just simply that there are a lot of young people coming up in the Democratic Party who mm-hmm. want a chance to to be players, and uh, you know they're looking at uh, a leadership that's uh, been around for a long time. So totally apart from ideology or political direction. There's just a, a, a bit of a, of a generational shift as well going on. Well, now explain this to me, because uh, Representative Philemon Vela does not necessarily seem to be of a younger contingent, I suppose. Uh, he's from Brownsville, of course. Uh, yet he seems to have been one of the most vocal opponents of uh, another uh, leadership round for Ms. Pelosi. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that that is an example of where this divide breaks down along ideological grounds. Uh, Philemon Vela is very outspoken uh, as, a, as a critic of Donald Trump. 
and wants a much more aggressive resistance to uh, the administration. That has a lot more to do with his opposition and that of a lot of other people, too. But, you know, I would point out the real oomph, the the impetus for some of the resistance Mm -hmm. is that uh, some of the people who have had trouble with this, uh, for example, um, Lizzie Pennell Fletcher in Houston, who has come around to to, uh, to supporting Pelosi. But, you know, some of the people who are having trouble with it are people who represent swing districts, hmm. Democrats who've been getting hammered for the last year uh, with having Pelosi wrapped around their necks and don't think that it's particularly helpful to the party and to its prospects. Now, just to be clear for those keeping score at home, uh, Lizzie Pennell Fletcher unseated John Culberson uh, to represent part of Houston, right? That's right. Yeah, she unseated a nine-term uh, Republican incumbent, and so uh, people like Fletcher are more susceptible to this line of attack that they're, you know, they're tools of Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Pelosi presumably representing everything that's, you know, you know, San Francisco liberals, uh, mm-hmm. all of that. What about some of those other new Texas uh, Democrats uh, uh, coming to Capitol Hill? Uh, Sylvia Garcia of Houston, Colin Allred of Dallas, Veronica Escobar of El Paso. Where are they lining up? Um, I can only speak for Sylvia Garcia in Houston, um, who has weighed in for Pelosi on the grounds of immigration. She sees Pelosi as having been a strong supporter of Dreamers and DACA, and that's a big issue for Sylvia Garcia. It represents a Hispanic majority district on the east side. Some of the blue dogs uh, from uh, uh, Texas uh, want to keep Pelosi in place. What? I guess they fear uh, her replacement. They're, they're afraid of a, of a house uh, uh, moving further to the left. Yeah, the thing about blue dogs is really interesting. The blue dogs like Pelosi because Pelosi has historically allowed blue dogs to be blue dogs. In other words, she has given them buys on certain votes, votes that are difficult for Democrats in conservative districts. And we're talking about we're talking about basically more conservative leaning Democrats. Yeah, for example, uh, Henry Cuellar, right. uh, who runs Laredo. Pelosi is a strategist. She's a tactician. She understands that in order to gain a majority in the House of Representatives, you have to allow representatives to represent their districts. So you can't go to somebody in a rural district in Texas and expect them to line up along Democrats from New Jersey, New York, uh, (laughs) Washington, or what have you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they appreciate that and they get along with her. She's she's pragmatic. Kevin, if not Pelosi, then who? Well, that's the problem. They don't know. They don't really have a, a candidate. There's there's no clear alternative that's emerged. And I think that that works, obviously, to Pelosi's advantage. The other side has not been able to really coalesce around a single uh, candidate. Kevin Diaz is following this story for the Houston Chronicle. We'll link to his latest at TexasStandard.org. Kevin, thanks so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. While many folks were focused on politics on Friday, the U.S. Department of Education released sweeping new regulations for Title IX. That's the 1972 federal civil rights law that prohibits gender discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial aid. Changes that could undo efforts at many Texas colleges and universities aimed at giving greater weight to complainants. Gone would be Obama-era guidance, which called for more aggressive enforcement of Title IX in new protections for students accused of sexual misconduct, and reduced liability for schools investigating complaints. 
these changes happening amid what has been described as an unprecedented era of Title IX enforcement. Paula Levine is a reporter for ESPN's Enterprise and Investigative Unit. She's also co-author of Violated, Exposing Rape at Baylor University amid college football sexual assault crisis. She joins us now on The Standard. Welcome back. Thank you. What are the big policies that stand out to you in terms of what the uh, Trump administration is proposing here? Well, from the get-go, there was a real emphasis on giving more rights to the accused. And the way that that the Trump administration uh, and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos uh, proposes this is that the standard to prove that uh, someone is responsible for a violation is higher. Um, There is also provision in there to allow for cross-examination of the alleged victim. Mm -hmm. And there are some restrictions, too, that I think benefit the university more so than anyone. I mean, it sort of reduces the number of cases that they'd be responsible for by uh, making it that it would be have to be something that would be on campus or something within the school's uh, jurisdiction, such as a university event off campus. So a lot of the other complaints that you've seen dealt with previously uh, would not even be subject to Title IX jurisdiction Like, anymore. for instance, like a sexual and, misconduct alleged to have occurred off campus at an apartment or something along those lines that yeah, might not yeah, fall under? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one, of, that's one of the big concerns. And and a lot of the cases that we've seen come forward, especially ones that have you know garnered a, a lot of media attention, are cases that would fit that profile. Very interesting. Now, uh, as my understanding, it's my understanding that the Obama administration's guidance had discouraged direct cross-examination uh, because of the potential to to re-traumatize uh, accusers. Is that right? Yeah, and that's one of the biggest concerns now with these changes is that you you have something that is already underreported. I mean, statistics show that that women, especially who experience sexual assault, domestic violence. Uh, are, are not reporting it reflective of how often it actually happens. And so the real fear is that you throw something like that into the process, a process that complainants already describe as being onerous. And the fear is that you're really going to discourage even more of them from coming forward because if they feel like they're going to go into this process and it's going to be like a courtroom setting, they're going to be less likely to, to come forward and, and take part in in any sort of uh, a Title IX process at a university. Baylor University, obviously, and you know this better than most, has undergone a lot of scrutiny for uh, the uh, number uh, and egregiousness of sexual assault cases and its ways of, of dealing with complaints. Had these new guidelines been in place during the so-called Baylor scandal, how might things have been different, or do you think they would have been? Well, I think one of the big things that comes out of these new proposals is the fact that in order for the university to have jurisdiction over it, it has to be reported to a quote-unquote responsible employee. That means that professors, coaches, you know, other people at the university aren't necessarily mandatory reporters anymore. And at Baylor, you had a lot of women who said, well, you know, I came forward and I, I told a coach or I told my professor, I told an academic advisor, uh, you know, those in, in under these new guidelines, those individuals wouldn't necessarily be responsible for having to report this up the chain. And that was a really big issue with, with what happened at Baylor and with what's happened at other universities as well. And now schools would kind of be off the hook if if that didn't happen. Paula Levine is reporter for ESPN's Enterprise and Investigative Unit. She's co-author of Violated, Exposing Rape at Baylor University Amid College Football Sexual Assault Crisis. Thanks for speaking with us on The Standard. You're welcome.
He is monitoring the talk of Texas on this Monday. He's our social media editor. Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. A quote, wouldn't it have been nice if we got Osama bin Laden a lot sooner than that? Those words from President Donald Trump escalated his attacks on former University of Texas System Chancellor and retired Admiral Bill McRaven. Yeah, I think the, I saw that on Sunday. Yeah, exactly. Interview. Yeah, the backstory there, McRaven publicly dared the president to revoke his security clearance in solidarity with ex-CIA chief and Trump critic John Brennan. And in that interview this weekend, Trump instead called McRaven a, quote, Hillary backer and said this of bin Laden, quote, everyone in Pakistan knew he was there. Close quote. Among the Texans responding on social media, this one's interesting, outgoing Republican House Speaker Joe Strauss. Hmm. Yeah, he tweets, Admiral McRaven has served our country and the state of Texas with honor, integrity, and distinction. I am grateful for his many contributions to our country, and I know no better leader. Very interesting indeed. You know, there's lots more reactions and responses on our I'll Facebook bet. page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard. Yeah, lots, uh, yeah lots, lots of folks sounding off there. Uh, you know, you can also tweet us at Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar is looking for you. He's our social media editor, and he'll be back in 35 minutes or so with more of the Talk of Texas. Stick around. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen, including a healthy diet and exercise, can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publishers of Texas travel guides, cookbooks, and humor, including Speak Texan in 30 Minutes or Less. At Barnes & Noble, The Alamo, The Bullock, Amazon, Bucky's, and greattexasline.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. In national media, it's an old standby to report on changes in Texas's public school education standards. They often play right into the stereotypes. But in a state where people can still be heard arguing over a sectional conflict of the mid-19th century, there's a new headline that hits close to home. On Friday, the Texas Board of Education voted to change how public school students learn about the Civil War. Texas Public Radio education reporter Camille Phillips has the story. Previously, Texas social studies standards listed three causes of the Civil War. Sectionalism, states' rights, and slavery, in that order. Democrats on the board originally wanted to list slavery as the only cause. Marisa Perez-Diaz represents San Antonio. We've heard from um, different um, subject matter experts who have basically told us that what the use of states' rights is doing is essentially blanketing or skirting the, the real foundational issue, which is slavery. We need to just say that. David Bradley is a Republican from Beaumont. Each state had differences and made individual decisions as to whether or not to join into the conflict, correct? Uh, I mean, that's the definition of states' rights. In the end, the Republican-led board landed on a compromise. Going forward, students will learn that the expansion of slavery played a, quote, central role in causing sectionalism, disagreements over states' rights, and the Civil War. Houston Democrat Lawrence Allen Jr. is the only African-American board member. He helped write the new language. I think it's an excellent start. He believes it draws a straighter line between slavery and the Civil War than the previous standards did. I don't think we really have that as a consensus in our state. And so if we can't drive it to a consensus in our state, we need to let our students look at it from all points of view. The board also decided to keep Hillary Clinton and Helen Keller in the curriculum, reversing a decision that made headlines in September. 
However, the standards still list only one cause for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the, quote, rejection of the existence of the state of Israel by Arab nations. Historians say that one-sided framing is an oversimplification. Shifa Badi is a Pakistani-American teacher in the Fort Worth suburbs. At a public hearing this week, she warned the board about the potential for anti-Muslim bias and shared her experience as an eighth grader on 9-11. That was the day that I received my first death threat in my locker. It was shoved in there. Um, my teachers did nothing. Lawrence Pasca is executive director of the National Council for the Social Studies. He says what students learn in school has a big impact on how they understand history and current events. And be able to not just listen carefully and, and respond thoughtfully to each other's ideas, but that they're exposed to sources of information that may include conflicting perspectives on controversial issues. The new Texas social studies standards will start to be implemented in August 2019 in San Antonio. I'm Camille Phillips. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Here's something to be thankful for if you're gearing up to travel this week. Consumer gas prices have continued their downward trajectory. According to the good folks at AAA, gas prices in Texas now average about $2.32. That's down about 30 cents from a month ago. Wow. Meanwhile, a different story for those relying on diesel to get around. What's up? For one thing, diesel prices. Why the differential? Well, let's check in with energy insider Matt Smith. He's director of commodity research at Clipper Data and a regular here on The Standard. Hey there, Matt. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing all right, but uh, I'm not so sure about these gasoline prices. I mean, yeah, it's great for consumers, but we're really seeing the uh, the bottom fall out, are we not? Yeah, so they're basically playing catch-up. So mm. we've seen oil prices drop nearly 30% from the peak in early October to, to last week. Uh, they're down about 25% now, and retail gasoline prices are only down 15%. And so they work on a lagged basis. And so we should see over the next week or two, potentially another 5 to 10% drop coming through uh, on a retail basis there. Well, let's get back to this diesel then. What's happening with diesel? And maybe we should understand first what diesel actually is relative to the other stuff at the, at the gas pumps. Diesel essentially is, is used in uh, larger vehicles. It used to be used as, as heating oil up in the northeast of the U.S., but predominantly used uh, for, for larger uh, trucks, etc. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing is this changing dynamic between middle distillates, which is diesel, and gasoline demand. So demand for diesel is strong. The economy is chugging along. We're seeing a lot of uh, goods being transferred around the country by by these vehicles. So that's a good thing. Uh, but because of that and because of export demand, uh, we're seeing inventories relatively in check. Interesting. So, so in a way, because the economy is doing rather well, uh, even as gas prices fall, the demand for diesel uh, is picking up, I suppose. Yes. And also, just as an aside, we're, even just with Texas, as we see those pipeline constraints there, we're seeing more things moved around by rail. We're seeing oil being moved around by truck. Uh, that's also uh, adding to that uh, diesel demand growth as well on, on some level. But one thing that we are seeing, David, is that you've got this kind of dichotomy between diesel and gasoline. Mm-hmm. So even though diesel demand is strong, uh, gasoline demand is fairly flat. Consumption is fairly level. 
Um, but when you refine a barrel of oil, you get much more gasoline out of it and less diesel. Mm -hmm. So gasoline margins are really low because demand isn't that strong. But uh, margins for refining diesel are really strong, really high. And so these refiners are being encouraged to refine when you look at it on the aggregate uh, because um, the, the, the margins overall are good. But they're producing more of the stuff they don't need the gasoline to target and produce more of the stuff that they, they <laughs> oh, want, wow. which is the diesel. So you're getting a bit of a glut building up for gasoline, uh -huh. uh, whereas you're not for diesel. One other element as well is that the lighter the barrel of crude oil that you use as an input into a refiner, uh -huh. the more gasoline you get out of it and the less diesel. So as these U.S. refiners focus on these on using cheap domestic light sweet crude oil right produced in texas predominantly there that from that barrel you get uh, more gasoline and less diesel and so all the while they're targeting refining more but they're refining more light sweet crude getting more gasoline less diesel which is the stuff that they want yikes and of course you have more gasoline in a market that's already being considered a, a rather full uh so are we talking about a, a how where does this spiral go are we talking about something that's short term or what do you how do you see it well this is this is a trend that is going to become more ingrained over the next few years so what we have is this a massively game-changing event happening in 2020 is called IMO 2020. Uh, and what that is, is uh, all ships on a global basis have to switch from using 3.5% sulfur content in their, their uh, fuel oil uh, to 0.5% sulfur. So to do this, uh, all of the vessels around the globe are going to have to switch from using heavier, gunkier residual fuel to these middle distillates and this diesel. And so that demand is only going to ramp up significantly as we move into 2020 and beyond. And so this trend of diesel being in demand, whereas gasoline less so, uh, is only going to be exacerbated over the coming years. Fasten your seatbelts, folks. Matt Smith is Director of Commodity Research for Clipper Data. Matt, thanks for getting us up to speed and, and uh, happy Turkey Week. Thank you. You too. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be a force for the greater good, like Professor Liren Ma, who is developing a program to make an iPhone operate as an inexpensive hearing aid. TCU, lead on. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. A week from today, early voting begins in the Houston area for a special election for Texas Senate District 6. It's to fill the seat just vacated by Congresswoman-elect Sylvia Garcia. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports on who's vying to replace her. They include Democratic State Representatives Carol Alvarado and Anna Hernandez, Democratic activist Maya Mundy, and Republican activist Martha Fierro. Alvarado previously ran for the seat in a 2013 special election, forcing a runoff before losing to Sylvia Garcia. Early voting begins Monday, November 26th. Election day is Tuesday, December 11th. In Houston, I'm Andrew Schneider. 
Members of the Texas House plan to issue recommendations on how to update their sexual harassment policy by the first week of December. The guidelines were initially revised at the end of 2017. That was after the Daily Beast and the Texas Tribune found a pervasive culture of sexual harassment at the legislature and few protections for victims. Retiring House Speaker Joe Strauss also created a working group this past May to further address this issue. That group met on Friday and learned the results of a survey sent to all state representatives and their staff. Dr. Noel Landon is the University of Texas at Austin analyst who directed the survey. He told lawmakers survey respondents raise concerns about how to make the current policy more clear. A lot of interest in what is going to happen next. If, this, if I file this, what is the timeline or consideration? Landon also described an issue that caught him by surprise. Not only were people gave comments about harassment within the house, and they weren't saying there's harassment, but they're having the what do we do about harassment internally, but external factors as well, people coming in, constituents, lobbyists coming into the offices. How do we address that? If Speaker Strauss approves of the working group's final recommendations for the chamber's sexual harassment policy, it will likely head to the House floor for a vote. A minor league baseball team in the Texas panhandle has stumbled into a bit of controversy over its new moniker. The Amarillo Sod Poodles was the team name heard round the internet when it was announced last week. But it turns out while the team owns the trademark for Sod Poodles, the name Amarillo Sod Poodles belongs to another group. That's Stone Ranch Media LLC. President Dusty Green filed for the trademark mere days after Amarillo Professional Baseball announced the five finalists for the name of this San Diego Padres AA affiliate. Green spoke to KFDA, the local Local CBS station in Amarillo. Sod Poodles just sounded like a good name and it was available. Tony Enzer, president and general manager of the Amarillo Sod Poodles, said in a statement they're following the trademark process and quote, we are not at all concerned and will let the process play out. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Fort Lonesome, Texas-based chain-stitch embroidery design and tailor-made custom western wear on Instagram and at fortlonesome.com. You got to tune to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. If you lived in Texas in the 1980s and 90s, you might be about to have a flashback. If his name doesn't ring a bell, his voice almost certainly will. From the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, I'm Dr. Red Duke. Dr. James Henry Duke Jr., a.k.a. Red, was a regular on TV and radio across the Lone Star State once upon a time. His health reports featured him out at construction sites, rodeo arenas, and restaurants, talking about everything from kidney stones to potatoes. He was also a surgeon. He was an Eagle Scout, an ordained minister, a conservationist, a pioneer, and many people consider him to have been a visionary in the medical field. A new book explores all these different angles of Duke. It's called I'm Dr. Red Duke, and it's written by Bryant Boutwell. Bryant, uh, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. My pleasure. So I, uh, what was your first encounter with Dr. Duke? Do you remember his health reports firsthand? Well, my doctorate is actually in public health, and that's how I met Red. He was a trauma surgeon at the uh, Herman Hospital and the UT Medical School, and I was working over at MD Anderson, but in the early days, in the, in the 70s, uh, helicopters kept buzzing over. So I kept wondering, what's going on? They said, there's this new doctor over there at Herman and UT that uh, started this program called Life Flight. And by 1993, I joined the medical school. I became an associate dean, and so Red was frequently in my office to uh, 
give me updates and stir up a little trouble and uh, <laughs> uh, give me ideas of things we ought to be doing. He was a character, wasn't he? I mean, there was, his personality was, uh, was a big part of his appeal. Yes. Uh, I worked 44 years in the medical center with some of the great names in medicine, and there's no one like Red Duke, and I don't think there ever will be. He was, he was a, quite a character. He was a talented surgeon. He was from a small town, Ennis, and then he grew up in Hillsboro. Uh, but he had that small town uh, approach, common sense, but he had the skills of the very best trauma surgeon in the world. What do you think led him to become the public figure that he did become? I mean, because a, a lot of a lot of uh, folks in uh, the medical field, uh, well, they take a much lower profile, I suppose it's safe to say. He became a public figure and, and seemed to relish the role. He did. Well, he, he grew up in Hillsboro. One of his friends down the road in Abbott was Willie Nelson. If you look at pictures of Red, even throughout his childhood, he's a character. He's always doing something in the photo to, to get attention. Ham it up a little uh, bit. He's a, yeah, he was, a, he was a natural ham. And uh, not only was he a good surgeon, but he was, he was such an interesting character that UT said, maybe he's the guy we ought to put on TV for some health reports to try to educate the public. And Red was very committed to prevention and uh teaching uh, the public about prevention. You know, they, they, I, I've never heard Oslerian medicine defined very well, but when I think of it casually, I suppose I think of it as sort of uh, that uh, bedside manner uh, <laughs> logarithmically multiplied. Is it, there's, uh, that, that Oslerian <laughs> yeah. medicine is about the attention and care given to those who are suffering. Um, was, was that part of the attraction for you in writing about this? Yeah, Red was a special guy, and he always put his patients first. And, and Sir William Osler, he, he died 100 years ago, 1919, so 99 years ago. But he was a role model for professionalism, for caring for the patient. He used to say, we're treating a person, not a disease. He always put the person first. So, you know, knowing someone like Red Duke, who never slept, he basically lived in the hospital day and night, his whole life was about helping others and uh, and being kind of a professional role model on many levels. Could you tell me a little bit about those boot prints in the trauma rooms over at uh, Texas Medical Center? Yes, uh, the Herman Hospital, uh, after Red died, uh, they dedicated their entire trauma operation because Red really started it back in the 70s, and it's now the Red Duke Trauma Institute. And the fitting thing to do was to put red boot prints in every trauma bay there. And it's one of the busiest trauma facilities in the country. And uh, there's red's boot prints standing there. You know, he trained many of the physicians that are there. So he's kind of always standing there helping, helping those that uh, come in. In many ways, this is a story about uh, the future of healthcare and its past. And it's also about a unique Texan and a, a unique doctor as well. I'm Dr. Red Duke is the title of the book. The author, Bryant Boutwell, with a foreword by President George H.W. Bush there. Dr. Boutwell, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. We certainly do appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. I'm E.R. Bills, and I'm the author of 100 Things to Do in Texas Before You Die. I did a lot of foreign traveling before I settled down and had a wife and kids. And when I did that, um, traveling abroad wasn't quite in the budget, so I started traveling around Texas. So the uh, 100 Things to Do in Texas Before You Die, I've done everything. But the experiences have been pretty spread out. A lot of it is pretty fresh, though. If you live in Texas, you know there's at least a thousand things to do, and I could have written a tome. So it was really important to me to try to cover the entire geography of the state. One of the new things that I discovered uh, was the Padre Island National Seashore. And if you go down 30 or 40 miles, you have a stretch of 10 miles of the beach to yourself. It's like you're, you're wealthy. I mean, you could probably literally, literally walk around nude all day and maybe not see anything or anybody, except maybe a turtle. <laughs> the food section was, was difficult. The first thing that I addressed was Tex-Mex because we all eat it. I mean, it really sort of, in my opinion, it defines who we are more than any other food source. So everybody may not be able to complete or do everything, <laughs> but, but that's why it's a bucket list. It may take a while. Gosh, you better start when you're young, because even if I wanted to ride or participate in the Hotter Than Hell 100 now, I think it'd be really difficult. <laughs> I think it's a neat place to discover. I think it's a neat place to live. And there are, there are so many natural treasures, but what, what I really wanted to express in the book is the diversity, geography, culture, really, in terms of people. Get out there, see this stuff, experience it. This is E.R. Bills, and I'm the author of 100 Things to Do in Texas Before You Die. And you're listening to The Texas Standard. Forty-two minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown at the box office this weekend. Fantastic Beasts: The Crimes of Grindelwald, topping The Grinch and Bohemian Rhapsody for the top spot. The weekend for films begins early this week on Wednesday. What with so many kids out for Thanksgiving, alas, one of the grand old movie palaces in San Antonio will remain dark. Built in 1949, it often showcased Mexican cinema with desegregated seating. But the Alameda is set to return, only this time. Some of the pictures may be in your head. Texas Public Radio's Norma Martinez explains. The Alameda closed in the late 1980s. There have been numerous attempts to revive it, but the latest might be the one that sticks. The city of San Antonio, in partnership with Bear County, La Familia Cortez, a family business that owns five restaurants in town, and Texas Public Radio, plan to restore and revive the Alameda as a multimedia live performing arts and film center serving the Latino community. Texas Public Radio's future headquarters will be housed adjacent to the theater and the non-historic backstage structure. But before we get into the plans for renovation, 
it's important to remember the cultural relevance the Alameda has in the community. A recent open house hosted by the Alameda Theater Conservancy featured a tour of its theater and its grounds. When you get to the front doors of the Alameda, you're greeted by giant illustrated panels of a charro and a woman in traditional Mexican dress with flowers in her hair. On either side are elaborate curved stairways that lead theatergoers to the balcony. The stairways, bordered by elaborately sketched plexiglass railings, are blocked off for safety. The theater is nearly in the shape it was when it ceased to operate two decades ago. Chicano scholar and art historian Tomás Ibarra Frausto led the tour and says the history of the Alameda is reflective of the history of San Antonio. Ibarra Frausto says when the Alameda was in its prime, this was where the Mexican-American community learned about itself. And the movies told about the revolution, the revolutionary heroes Zapata, Pancho Villa, and it also showed the indigenous communities in Mexico. Remember, a lot of this was not taught to us in high school or in elementary school. And so we saw and learned the history through the movies. When you pass through the lobby and under the Art Deco chandeliers and walk through the double doors on either side, you see a wide expanse of emptiness. This is where thousands of bodies would have sat in the dark, passing popcorn down the aisle with eyes glued to the stage or the screen. There are no seats there now. And if you walk closer to the stage area, there are just a few chairs and a projector showing some short films on a screen. But when you turn around to look back at the house, the first thing that grabs your attention is a huge balcony, which is shrouded in darkness. And when you look to your left and your right, you see large blue-tinted murals. Ibarra Frausto explains their meaning. On the left-hand side is the story of Texas. You can see, you know, the Spaniards coming uh, with their oxen. And in the buildings, you see the cathedral, you see the Alamo, and it's sort of like history of Texas. And then on this side was the history of Mexico. And you see the Spaniards, Columbus coming, and then you see the, the conquistadores. And what makes the murals even more special, they're drawn with phosphorescent black light paint. They're meant to glow in the dark. Ibarra Frausto says the murals and the building itself is a symbolic union of the two cultures that make up Texas and San Antonio. Rachel Delgado, a member of the Westside Preservation Alliance, has fond childhood memories of seeing shows at the Alameda. Enjoying the, Mex the Mexican movies, the variedades, the running around the theater, and the ladies' lounge was glamorous. Mirrors all along the wall. The little table was a bean shape, you know, curved around. I was a little girl and I felt so glamorous in there. And 97 year old Jesus Rios Vidales, a short, spry, spirited man, remembers entertaining theater goers outside the Alameda with his Mexican trio, El Trio Los Románticos, and having the gumption to ask the manager for permission to play inside. I told him, my name is Jesse Vidalis. I used to be a singer back in my days, and I still sing every now and then. I got my trio, 
And I wanted to see if you could give me permission to come in and sing one or three songs. Oh, yes, yes, come on in, come on in. And I loved it. Plans to revive the Alameda Theater include converting the 3,000-seat venue into a more intimate 1,000-seat space. It'll include modern sound and lighting upgrades and the restoration of historically significant structures like the stairways, the glamorous mirrored women's powder rooms, and the expansive balcony. 97-year-old Jesse Vidalis has hopes the spirit of the building will not be tarnished with shiny new upgrades. I hope that they will be uh, doing the right thing, not to distort, you know, the recognition of the building, because they're going to be destroying, you know, the sentimental feelings that theater in the early days. And I know we will continue to see Alameda. Construction is set to begin in July 2019, with completion in fall 2020. For the Texas Standard, I'm Norma Martinez. Pasaste. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver business-by-design supply chain solutions for cost transparency and process integration in mid-market companies. More at softwareaspromised.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. In the aftermath of an election, not much thought is often given to the political party that lost, but in a state where Republicans have held sway for as long as they have, It couldn't have been comfortable to see so many cities and suburbs turn blue. With another Texas legislative session set to begin in a little more than a month, the editorial board at the Dallas Morning News thought about the implications of the changes and began to ask a reasonable question about the long-term impact of the midterms. How might a GOP-led statehouse behave given the changing political map of Texas? That's why they issued a warning to state lawmakers, don't mess with Texas's blue zones Rudy Bush is deputy editor of editorials for the Dallas Morning News. Rudy, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thanks for having me, David. Uh, Last week, uh, you ran an editorial entitled Republican Lawmakers Don't Take Revenge on Texas's Big Blue Urban Cities. Why do you think that this was uh, necessary, this warning? We are concerned about a trend that we've seen in the legislature for a long time, which is to try to him in local government's ability to have the flexibility to uh, set property tax rates uh, in the in the way that they traditionally have. And this is not just uh, municipalities, it's also school districts. And so uh, our expectation is very much that Governor Abbott and, and Lieutenant Governor Patrick will bring back legislation that would limit local government's ability to uh, raise property taxes. And, and, and our feeling, David, is that uh, local citizens, local government uh, have, have the closest connection to one another. And if, if people want to control their t- property tax rates, they, they can and should do that at the, uh, at the ballot box for their city council races or their school board races. You know, it used to be that Republicans were all about local control, and we've had this conversation, I know, in the past. So what would this be about if, in fact, they were trying to put caps on? I mean, isn't this about uh, a certain Republican ideology uh, uh, of another sort, and that is lower taxes are a good thing? I, I, think, I think that's a, the f- foundation of it, a- absolutely. And the, the idea is pe- people across the state are feeling the squeeze on their property tax bills. And, and that, is, that is certainly true. And I think we have seen that reflected in, in what Texans are saying uh, across the state. 
But I think what we're also seeing is something that's maybe a little bit counterintuitive. Here in Dallas, for example, uh, the people overwhelmingly uh, voted for a 13 cent property tax increase to pay for programs within the Dallas Independent School District uh, that have proven to be effective in turning around a school district that is 90 plus percent impoverished, that is serving students who oftentimes are uh, immigrants or English language learners. And it's extremely difficult uh, oftentimes to serve that population, even if you're in a city like Dallas that you might say is quote-unquote, rich from a property value perspective. So local taxpayers are telling their local governments, we're willing to pay for these services. We're hmm. willing to pay for this investment mm-hmm. uh, if you'll give us the ability. Now, uh, I want to make sure that I understand something because the headline itself, uh, mm-hmm. the title, Don't Take Revenge on Texas's Big Blue Urban Cities. Are you suggesting that perhaps Texas lawmakers may, in fact, want to exact some kind of punitive measure on those uh, who chose to vote for Democrats in the in the midterms? Or are you saying something else? Well, I think there's a fundamental philosophical difference between the parties about what taxation should look like and how it should be effectuated. And, and so if the Republican legislature decides that we don't want uh, to permit local governments in areas really across the state, but it's most effective on those, those big blue urban cities. We don't want to give them the flexibility to set their tax rates in the way that they historically have had. Then that is, that, that is an indication to me that the the Republican party, uh, the Republican controlled legislature is controlling uh, urban areas in ways that we would prefer that, that they not do. We would prefer that they they uh, give those areas these, the flexibility that they have traditionally had. Rudy Bush is deputy editor of editorials for the Dallas Morning News. We'll link to the editorial at texasstandard.org. Rudy, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks, David. And you were listening to the Texas Standard. So what's on your mind, Texas? Yeah, our social media editor, Wells Dunbar, has been monitoring the talk of Texas on social media. How you doing there, Wells? Doing all right, David. Doing okay. Lots of folks on Facebook talking about a story from earlier in the show, how next year Texas students will learn slavery, slavery played a central role in the Civil War. Due central to those... role uh, the, in quotes there. Yes, yes, right. and this is all due to new social studies curriculum standards that the State Board of Education approved late last week. So previously, kids learned there were three causes of the Civil War sectionalism, states' rights, and slavery, I believe in that order. Mm-hmm. On Facebook, Trevor Keel writes, if you have any questions about that fact that slavery played a central role, you can read the Texas Declaration of Secession, which he helpfully linked to, and prominently names the institution of slavery as a cause several times. Meanwhile, Flip Garza says, try reading the state-approved Texas history book. It's more like a Texas myth glorification book. And as you noted, David, these uh, issues with the State Board of Education always become real flashpoints. This is obviously not an exception there. Another story from the show, Texans of a certain age 
probably remember those four words, I'm Dr. Red Duke. Yeah. I know it takes me back to being a boy in Dallas in front of my TV at at my grandmother's house there, and I am not the (laughs) only one. This is cool. Chris tweets this. He says, I remember seeing Dr. Red Duke on TV in Iowa growing up. So obviously a pretty big footprint there. Yeah, I thought thought it was just a Texas thing. I guess not. not. Kay Merkel Boroff tweets us that she loves Dr. Red Duke. And I got to say, you know, I I was preparing for the show, and I was, uh, he has a whole bunch of clips on YouTube. You can I go back and it. check it out. Huh. I made like a GIF out of one of them uh, for our uh, Texas Standard Twitter feed there. And yeah, so you can go back and that's <laughs> fascinating. It opens Had up with no hammering a jackhammer. I think it was the one on kidney stones, one of wow. the more notable ones there. Huh. So very, very cool stuff. Uh, check it out. Shifting gears, uh, you know what everyone's talking You know what's on everyone's mind today. It's Thanksgiving week. Of course. I guess of we've course. kind of extrapolated this uh, holiday of, thank- of Thanksgiving, I guess you could say. Yes. And that's uh, you know, the food that goes along with it out towards an entire weekend. And Austin Scott Hendricks says, okay, it may be Monday, but just remember it's a short week that ends with pie and shopping. We can do this. <laughs> Meanwhile, also in Austin, David Bacal Lee says, it's that time of year. If you don't want the truth, don't ask me to taste your mac and cheese. Oh, Yeesh. yeah, I know. That's kind of rough. On. And in Dallas, Lizzie Bailey says, and the week of baking for a 20-minute moment on Thanksgiving begins today. So shout out to all the uh, yeah. people there laboring away in the kitchens there. I Careful know with the fried turkey. That's that's the one that seems to get a lot of people uh, off guard. You know, you, you got to have the hazmat suits. You got to have the goggles. You got to have all that kind of good stuff. <laughs> I know. It really is, uh, you know, like a Mythbusters episode come to life if you do not yeah. uh, do that right. You know, we got our uh, fried turkey from Popeye's this year. Really? Which is nice. Popeye's. It's fried, but then chilled, and you just reheat it. But apparently it's delicious. Did you get red beans and rice with that? Or no? <laughs> no. Oh, well. Uh, we'd love to hear your recipes or your plans for Thanksgiving and the big run-up. And that's where we are right now. Alas, we're also out of time for the big broadcast. But we're going to be right back here tomorrow. And we hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard team, I'm David Brown wishing you a marvelous Monday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation. Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. PRI Public Radio International.